Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another special history episode of the podcast is Naval History's Editor-in-Chief, our own Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Ward, how are you? Happy first day of autumn here in Annapolis. And it's beautiful gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just what you think about. Um, you can maybe even buoy our spirits a little bit in this COVID-19 environment and uh, go outdoors and socially distance and imagine that Mother Nature will ultimately be nice to us, right? You're here. Yeah. Amen to that. And one day we can all return to Beach Hall. It's been some time since we have, like every other organization on the planet. Uh, so what, what's going on in the world of Naval History Magazine? Well, we're real excited about the current issue. It's our um, 75th anniversary wrap-up of World War II issue, and it's just chock full of incredible content, including um, Vince's cover story, which we'll be talking about today, which is a great summation of the naval war in the greatest uh, event in human history and what a huge factor that was and the outcome of it. And that's just one of um, a whole package of uh, fascinating features through there, some of which we're exploring in these podcasts. Uh, meanwhile, we're gearing up for the next issue, which uh, should be a real winner as well. And that's uh, more to come on that as we go forward. Okay, fantastic. So without further ado, let's get to our guest. Uh, Vince O'Hare has been on the show. I think this is his third appearance, right? Or maybe it's even your fourth. Vince, is it your third or your fourth? I think this is my third appearance. Okay, third. Uh, third term, that, that may be a record. I don't think we've had anybody else, or it may tie the record. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't. Uh, I know we've had some folks on twice, um, but I think Vince is maybe the only guy that we've had on three times, which is great. Every time he's on, it's a fantastic conversation. So we're talking about his article in the October issue that Eric was just talking about. It's called The Greatest Naval War Ever Fought. So, Vince, welcome back to the Proceedings Podcast. Well, thank you, Ward. I think it's um, always a pleasure to be here, always a pleasure to talk to you and, and to um you know, share things that I, that I find so interesting. And you're joining us from your home in San Diego. And we were talking before we went on air and though fire smoke is kind of abated a little bit. Fire smoke is abated. You can go outside and breathe and not have your lungs tickle, which is kind of nice. Yes. Yes. It's, you know, love when that happens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're in the, we're in, we're in God's weather right now, you know, high seventies, very mild. It'll be like this for about a week or so. How are the waves? Well, you know, I've been so socially distanced that I haven't made it to the beach once this entire summer. Oh wow! So, but the the waves were the waves the water temperatures were good. I heard the waves were great, but I, I haven't I haven't been there. That's sad to say. That is sad to say. So we were out there back when the world was a normal place in early March. For West, it seems like five years ago now. Um, God, doesn't it know, though? Doesn't it? It absolutely oh. does. And so the weather was fantastic this year out there and uh so hopefully fingers crossed we can be back to normal quote unquote normal by march of this year we're sort of doing dual planning planning for a virtual west as well as an in-person west um but if not then we'll certainly plan on being out there in 2022 which will be here before we know it it's going to be super fast please let it be (laughs) yes so anyway that sounds kind of depressing actually so Vince, let's talk about this article. Um, what was it about the the Navy, the Naval War, uh, that uh, was arguably the most important part of the Second World War? Well, 
This is this is the um, debate that goes around and around and around the impact of terrestrial versus naval warfare in general. And of course, your naval historians will say that it all starts and ends on the ocean, and that there's no, no there's no no victory without victory at sea. I, I think the fact that World War II at sea was such a change so changed so frequently. I mean, it was one thing in 1940, it was another thing in 1941, another thing in 42. And it's almost impossible for people to grasp the enormity of the scale that was of, of activities that were going on. And I think one of the one of the functions of my article, or one of the purposes, one of the reasons why I wrote it, was to try to give some sort of handles that people could hang on to in order to understand and comprehend the enormity of the war at sea. I think you did that handily, Vince. Uh, I think I honestly say this: that I think this was a summative overview of the naval history of World War II in magazine-length format that will stand the test of time. People will still be reading this one years from now. And part of what is so great about how much you cram into one magazine article is the categories. You mentioned um, the five major categories of types of naval engagements that virtually every World War II naval aid, naval engagement fall into. Um, can you tell us about those? Well, sure. I, I, if you're familiar with my work, you know that I'm, I'm very much fond of categories. I'm always trying to sort and, and assign. As far as World War II at sea was concerned, it all had to do with either controlling the, controlling the waters or, or, or trying to fight the enemy's control of those waters, trying to, trying to practice sea denial as opposed to sea control. And I sit and I wonder why why do nations or navies take the actions that they take? And looking at all these different actions, I, I found that it's, it's possible to, um, to strip away all the complications and come up with simple, simple reasons. You know, you're at, you're at sea to make sure that your ships get through, to protect your traffic. You're at sea to, um, to fight the enemy, to try to win a decisive victory. You're at sea in order to, you know, for some specific reason, and I, I'm pretty satisfied that almost every naval event in World War II can, can be, at its simplest, reduced to one of, those, one of those functions that I mentioned in the article, one of those five different mission categories. And, and you know, they're big categories or small categories. Raiding a fish processing plant in Norway is, is pretty small beans compared to the Japanese attacking Ceylon and, and hitting the British fleet in the Indian Ocean, perhaps. But in essence... They're both conducted for the same reason, and they're both, um, you know, fall into that same category of rating. So that was kind of like my, my approach to the, to the uh, problem. Well, you have the five categories are traffic war, decisive battle, amphibious invasion slash evacuation, raids slash bombardments, and then fleet in being. Uh, so let's briefly talk about each one of those, and if you can give a definitive example of what, what we mean in terms of the history piece. Uh, so traffic war, and, and we're reminded of uh, the movie that we were just all over, uh, Greyhound, uh, was about the traffic war. So talk to us about that one. Uh, traffic war is, is perhaps the most famous, is certainly one of the, you know, it gets down to the core of it. The purpose that you're at sea is in order to transport goods, men, and supplies from one point to another point. And traffic war is either trying to prevent this transportation or trying to facilitate it. And 
I think the Battle of the Atlantic is the one example of traffic war that stands out in everybody's mind. The, the German submarines fighting for several years to stop the transport of supplies across the North Atlantic. And, and Greyhound was a, I just finished reading the book, The Good Shepherd. I haven't, I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, oh, you got to see it. You got to see it. I, I intend to. Yeah. If nothing else, to see if they drink. They really drank that much coffee. I mean, in the book, <laughs> you're drinking coffee like nobody's business. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I don't remember coffee drinking being a big. No, maybe Eric was that a big part of the, the plot, or I don't remember a lot of coffee drinking scenes. It was so it's so ratatat that movie. It's just one thing after another, constantly overlapping. I'm sure they were drinking lots of Java on there, though. Yeah. Well, in the book, in the book, he's drinking it like nonstop, and every time he, he drinks it, he's, he's just in heaven. But in any case, um, traffic war has big examples like like the U-boats, like the submarines, but it also has small examples. The, the fact that the Japanese, for example, never really seriously attempted to attack the U.S. traffic coming out across the Pacific. That's something that has people, historians scratching their heads saying, well, why didn't they do that? And there are reasons they didn't do that. I mean, they didn't conform to what they thought was important in warfare. But it's one of the points of the articles is it's not just the actions that you take, but it's the actions that you don't take that also affect the outcome of the war. And so the fact that the Japanese chose not to protect their traffic as well as the allies chose to or that they didn't pursue technologies like sonar, for example, had a big impact as well, because it was just one threat that the allies did not have to deal with. Uh, going on from traffic war, I have, I have um, decisive battles, decisive victories, and this is a form of warfare that's, that's not so common as traffic war. Basically, the Japanese were the greatest proponents of this this type of approach to naval warfare. They believed, based on their past history, that a single naval battle could have huge repercussions and even bring about victory over a much superior foe. The Battle of Toshima against the Russians in 1905 is the best example of that. Japan being clearly a much smaller and and less powerful country than Russia was still able to gain the victory via means of a decisive naval victory. And so this is a pretty seductive template that they tried to apply against the United States. And, and you, you can't really blame them for doing that. It worked once, it worked twice against China, against Russia. Why not take down the third giant, the United States? Uh, unfortunately for the Japanese, fortunately for us, the conditions were much different. The, the resources of the United States were far greater and we were not so fragile an enemy where one, one significant Japanese victory would have knocked us out of the war. But nonetheless, that was a form of warfare they tried to practice. The British also tried to practice that in the Mediterranean in 1940 with similarly poor results. Well, like uh, you say, on, like you say, uh, Midway and Lady Gulf were decisive, but not for the Japanese. They were decisive for us. Right, yeah, so. well, that's that's kind of like the other the other side of the decisive victory, isn't it? Like, what happens when you lose a decisive battle, or when you try to engineer a decisive victory, and oops, you lost it. Um, so, I think that's an important distinction you make, Vince. To be in that category, it just has to be intended to be decisive, even if it ends up not being. It still falls into that category of engagement, correct? Correct. By my, yeah. my way of thinking, and again, all of this can be disputed. All of this 
will be disputed. And I've had people come back to me after reading this article and saying, you know, what, what's this? You're nuts. Like, for example, I say that, that Italy achieved their, their fundamental naval goals by maintaining the sea lanes, going back to traffic war, maintaining the sea lanes between Africa and Europe and between the Balkans and Italy, and also the sea lanes with um, their outlying islands, which were also very important. And I've had people come back to me and say, you're nuts. I mean, that, that, I mean, how can you say that Italy accomplished their naval goals? And I think that has to go back to the idea that, we're, that, we, that we tend to look at the war at sea based on what we know. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but growing up, when I did, watching Victory at Sea, reading Morrison, my, my view of the war at sea tends to be pretty Anglo-American. It's, it's based upon, a, upon the tradition of victory that the United States Navy gained. You know, I grew up in a Navy town. Uh, my dad was a Marine Reserve. So I, I was exposed to all that stuff. And, and the power of the U.S. Navy and, and the, the, war, the war that we fought is a, very, is a very strong image for me. And it, it shapes how I think about the Naval War. But also, I think it, it limits it somewhat. And I think it's necessary to go beyond that, that um, vision a little bit to see the way that the war was to other powers. And the, the, the idea of um, charging in and using your fleet to gain victory at any cost is, is, is one that, that um, Anglo-American historians levy against the, the um, powers that practice the fleet and being strategy, for example. They'll say, well, you know, what's the, what's the sense of having a powerful warship if it's just cravenly sitting in port and not being used? You know, the function of battleships is to go out there and sail and fight. Well, is that true? And I think one of the points I'm trying to bring up in the article is that, no, it's not true. It's different for each country, depending upon what their situation is at that particular time, depending upon what their political objectives are, depending upon the military resources that they have available to them. And in the case of countries like France and Italy, you really cannot compare the military resources with those of the United States or Great Britain. I mean, how many destroyers did Britain construct during the war? I don't have the number off the top of my head, but if it was less than 100, I'll be surprised. And how many destroyers did Italy construct during the course of the war? Uh, less than 10. So it's, it's just a whole, the whole question of scale and how you use your fleet that is different for everybody. And, and we can't look at it in terms of the flags flying, the, um, the guns booming, the, the, you know, the Vs of carrier aircraft going overhead, that might be typical to the US example, but certainly not typical to the common example or the way it was for most of the nations that fought World War II during most of the course of the war. Uh, the next one's amphibious uh, invasions and evacuations. The examples you give are primarily European theater, but I, I think when you think of sort of popular history, the Pacific theater is the one that comes to mind when you say amphibious warfare. Well, it's kind of funny you say that because in my mind, when I think of amphibious warfare, I do think of Europe more than I think of, of the Pacific. And maybe that seems backwards. But I'm thinking of amphibious warfare in its, in its larger, larger um, scope, not just seizing a base, not just seizing an air base, but seizing a, a beachhead, seizing a, a, a foothold, seizing a continental enclave that 
can be expanded and lead to lead to ultimate victory. And that was the end game that we were going at in, in the Pacific. We, we've had all these amphibious landings, but the whole function of them was not to um, put the knife into the heart of Japan necessarily. It was to, trying to obtain bases that were closer to the Japanese homeland so we could apply that knife in the heart through the means of an amphibious invasion. Uh, the fact that one of the big differences in the world, World War II at sea that I didn't bring out in the article, but which probably deserves to be mentioned, was the fact that in terms of, of amphibious warfare, which arguably is the most important form of naval warfare, everything leads to that and everything is, is trying to set, up, set that up. The fact that German heartland was just right across a relatively narrow body of water as opposed to the fact that Japanese heartland is across an entire ocean, makes such a big difference. We had to go through three years of preliminaries to be able to do what we could have done, perhaps, several years earlier in Europe. I mean, think about that. We didn't have to, we didn't have to spend three years clawing for bases to bring us closer to Germany. We had the bases right there. But we just failed to execute the massive invasion that could have brought possibly victory earlier. And this is something I talked about before, I think, in, in the... Um, yeah, that was our first episode with you, was you know, maybe we, had, we could have done Normandy in 43. Maybe we could have. And one of the points I've raised in the article was, was what would have happened? You look at the breathless application of sea power in the Pacific, particularly after the um, landings in Boygenville in 1943, in November 1943, and less than a year later... We're landing in, in the Philippines, how many thousands of miles away? I 2,500 by my, my, my guesstimation at least. Uh, we're, landing, we're landing massive invasions across oceanic distances. And all this happens in less than a year. And it's kind of breathless. It's kind of, it's kind of mind-numbing almost, the power and the speed of the American amphibious offensive. And so in my... Heart of hearts, I have to wonder if sea power had been applied in the European theater of operations with a little bit of the same posh, a little bit of the same courage, not courage, courage is the wrong word, a little bit of the same guts, the same, um, the same. Determinedness? Yeah, enthusiasm, determinedness. Um, would it have made a difference? And I'll give you one really simple example. Operation Torch, which was our first large-scale amphibious operation of, of the war in the European theater, was conducted in November of 1942. And it was an amphibious assault across oceanic distances. The transports left um, Virginia in October and landed in Africa several weeks later. And, you know, you can't, you can't fault it for, being, for not being a daring operation, but how come they didn't go just a little bit further and send a regiment or two a little bit further to the, to the east and land in Tunisia as well as Algeria. Well, there were good reasons for not doing it and they were all pretty cautious and careful reasons, but it's an example of had a little bit more been risked that time, it could have saved three months of operations. It could have made a big difference in the, in, in the way the war played out in Europe. It could have made a very big difference. So, just one little example of what I mean by sort of the breathless enthusiasm and, and determinedness and, and 
and the speed of operations that was applied in the Pacific that wasn't necessarily applied in the um, Atlantic theater. It's ironic. It's almost because they didn't have to island hop across the English Channel, so to speak. They somehow didn't have that same drive that characterized that amazing thousands of miles drive across the Pacific. But you do point out the most single most important naval event of World War II is, in fact, in this category, and it is. Normandy, the landings in Normandy, of course. Right. And, and... I, I always present that as being the, the single greatest naval challenge that Germany faced during the course of the war. I, I, may, I make a point in the article that Germany, that the challenges Germany faced at sea changed as the war went on, changed according to the geography that the Germans controlled, and they changed according to the enemies that the Germans had to fight. In 1940, when the only enemy was Great Britain, the obvious solution was an amphibious landing on England to end the war. Well, Germany never attempted this, and most people will say that they weren't capable of attempting it. They couldn't have been successful if they had done it. And, you know, I'm not going to argue that point. I think in 1940, if Germany had tried to invade England, they would have um, been defeated. If they had tried to invade England in 1941, if they prepared for it, it's an open question. It's a big what if of the war, isn't it? I mean, there yeah. have been whole novels written about if, if England had fallen... Uh, in England under Nazi rule, it, it is a, a fascinating contrafactual World War II. What if they had done that? Because it's like the missing gap in their overall strategy. Well, it's something that it was an option. It was an option they chose not to pursue, and they they chose instead to pursue a traffic war solution, slower, um, not so risky in some respects, uh, a little bit more resource um, intensive over the long haul. They chose to follow that that solution. And that solution was not a solution because they were defeated, the same as they had been defeated in 1917, 1918, by anti-submarine warfare. Come November 19, or excuse me, come June 1944, Germany has a different naval imperative. Their naval imperative is how to prevent the Allies from exercising their sea power, how to prevent them from landing on the coast of Europe and winning a, a decisive beachhead. And they had practice, they had opportunities to practice in Italy where the stakes were not quite so high. And they failed both times, well, all three times, if you want to count, count Anzio. The fact that they had secret weapons waiting to deploy against the Allies in Normandy, such as the oyster mine, I think is important. I think it kind of shows the whole German approach to, um, to sea power in some respects. Here they are faced with this incredibly important challenge this incredibly important mission, they have a weapon, a secret weapon, that might really impact the Allies, that might even turn defeat, or might even, you know, give them victory. That's a super mine that's unsweepable. And they fail to deploy it in time. And you ask yourself, well, why, why did that happen? Well, because the Germans uh, had moved the stocks of the oyster mines away from the, um, the beachheads. The German Navy didn't want the mines to be deployed right away because they thought they would interfere with their own navigation. In other words, they were they were worried about the navigation of motor torpedo boats and, and torpedo boats uh, when they're faced with an invasion fleet of thousands of ships. It just doesn't make sense to me, personally. And they, they, they couldn't get the mines in the water for two weeks after the invasion. So you got to ask yourself, well, given the, given the fact that you have the tools, 
given the fact that you have the um, the emergency, the, the mission, you know, what went wrong with the Germans? What went wrong for the Germans? And I, and I think ultimately the answer is the fact that they just didn't take sea power seriously. They didn't give it the priority that it needed to be given. And they didn't practice it very well. They, they missed the big point repeatedly. They missed it in 1940. They missed it in 1942. And they missed it again in 1944. So, You, you bring up an interesting point about D-Day. And again, in most popular history that your average person knows it's a function of the longest day and saving private Ryan. And so there's no part of the plot that talks about what happened between England and uh, the, the literals of France. Were they opposed at all? Did they lose any craft along the way to U-boats or mines? What is that the untold story of, of D-Day? Not really. The mines, if the mines, if the oyster mines had gone into the water that same day, uh, it would have escalated Allied casualties pretty tremendously until we figured out that by going really slow, we wouldn't set the mines off. And that took, you know, it took a, it took a while to figure that out. I, I think um, the untold story of, of, of D-Day is that Germany basically missed the solution to their problem. They, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't really ask the right questions on, on what was important for them at sea. And I, I think they missed the solution. I don't think there was any way at that point by 1944 that they could have defeated the invasion or not easily, at least I mean, anything's possible, but, but um, I think that's, for me, that's the important thing is that Germany kind of missed the boat on, on what was important as far as, as far as sea power was concerned and what steps they needed to do to uh, preserve their, their conquests because they didn't preserve them and, and they, they lost them because of an amphibious landing. That's where it all started. So the fourth category is raids slash bombardments. Yeah, this is kind of a more of a minor um, category, but it accounts for a lot of activity. There's a wonderful complaint by um, Dudley Pound, who was the... Um, the British uh, first sea lord in 1941. He was complaining that um, about the politicians, about Churchill specifically, bugging him to use his battleships and his carriers more frequently to, to get out there and to attack the enemy and to raid the enemy. And he's complaining that the politicians think that the only function of a warship is to get out there and shoot its guns and, and to be active all the time. And obviously that's, not the only function, but you see a lot of a lot of political actions expressed in the form of raids, expressed in the in the notion that we have to be doing something. After after uh, Pearl Harbor, for example, the first use of the U.S. carriers was to go out and raid very insignificant Japanese air bases in the middle of the Pacific, and there was a certain amount of risk involved in these activities, and it was not a period in during the war, not a period of the war when the United States could afford to lose any aircraft carriers, but still we were out there putting our carriers at risk in order to attack really minor objectives. And the reasons being mostly political, you know, there, there has to be a sense that the Navy is doing something and there has to be a sense that, um, that we're fighting back. And I think the, the raid category fulfills this, this requirement for a lot of navies. In a lot of respects. I mean, obviously, there's another legitimate aspect to it is you're trying to reduce your enemy's strength, trying to attack their points of vulnerability, trying to 
get them to spread their defenses around. I mean, that's part of the idea behind doing things like um, raiding the coast of, of Norway is to tie up German divisions in, in Norway where they can't be used in Normandy. And, you know, to a degree, this did work. So it's, we're not saying it's, it's um, strictly political or, or militarily useless, but I think of the major categories of naval activity, I would rank raids below uh, amphibious operations. I'd rank them far below traffic war, just, just as a matter of, um, of importance. Which brings us to the fleet and being, and that's this is the the example of a naval activity where you you just exist. You don't have to do anything in order to conduct that activity. You just have a naval force that's present, able to operate, able to intervene in a certain area. And um, whether it does or not, the important thing is that it can. And that's that's the fourth or the fifth uh, category that I that I bring out in the paper. And I think it's important to bring this category out because it's one that Anglo American. Naval historians tend to denigrate a little bit. We tend to think, well, you know, not using those ships the way we should, or they're just, you know, in harbor. Um, and that's that's kind of takes away a little bit of, of, the, of the function of battleships, for example. There's a lot of debate these days whether battleships were superseded by aircraft carriers, whether they had any function. And of course they had a function. And just by existing, the fact that the Bismarck went out and raided in the um, central Atlantic in April of 1941, made a profound impression upon the British. And that was one of the reasons why three years later in 1944, the bulk of the British fast carrier fleet was was in, was in trying to attack the Tirpitz in Norway because they knew that it was possible for a battleship to get out in the sea lanes. And if it did, you know, havoc will follow. And that's, that's the final category of, of naval activity that I described. I think that's an easy one to to underrate, fleet and being, but I find it interesting because it gets to the idea of how the power of naval presence, just that presence, um, is a force to be contended with and a factor to weigh in what you decide to do. I feel like that has modern ramifications and potential hot spots of the world's oceans today, even. Um, you know, oh. having a fleet and being is such a uh, a, a viable position. Such a powerful, such a powerful thing, and you're completely right. It's, what's what's the modern function of an aircraft carrier? If I can be a little iconoclastic, yes, it's, it's it's a mobile air base. Obviously, it's it's a it's a force in being. It's a force that can be applied anywhere in the world at a relatively short notice. Now, if, yes, if there was a war going on between two major powers, you know, God forbid, I think the role of the aircraft carrier would be far different. I, you know, nobody knows what it would be because we haven't had that sort of situation. But I imagine with um, hypersonic missiles and whatnot, you're not going to see the aircraft carrier standing off the shores of Taiwan um, flying air defense missions over, over Taipei. That's just not going to happen. So it's, it's more important today as, as a presence, as a, as a potential force, than perhaps it would be in a real war as, as an actual force. Well... There's another list you supply in this article, and that is the, the categories of the phases of the naval war of World War II. Uh, maybe you could run through those for us. The whole idea of the phases has to do with the fact that it's tied to geography. I know that the, the ocean is supposed to be the world's commons, and, and a ship can theoretically sail anywhere on the ocean at any point. But the fact of the matter is in World War II, the geography of the war changed dramatically at different points 
And these, these change points typically occurred when a new participant either joined the war or dropped out of the war. And with new participants, obviously, you have new navies um, as well as new geographies participating. So to look at the war that France and England, or France and Great Britain, fought against Germany in early 1940, in terms of the naval war, it's, it's a completely different animal than the naval war just one year later. It's a different animal because A, France is an active participant uh, in 1940, where they're not an active participant in 41, although they're still fighting. Uh, B, Italy is a neutral power. Now it's, a, now it's in the war in 41. The Mediterranean is, is peaceful waters. Ships can sail up and down the Mediterranean without being attacked in 1940, whereas in 1941, of course, it's one of the most hard fought um, areas in the world. So how can you say that the naval war in 1940 and the naval war in 1941 were similar? Different participants, different geography, different um, objectives. You know, Germany's objective is to perhaps invade England in 1940, but in 1941, that's not an objective at all. So the, the war cannot be looked at as a unified whole. It, for me, it works much better looking at it in segments. After Italy is defeated and comes to an armistice with the Allies in September of 1943, geography changes again. It changes because the Mediterranean uh, is no longer as large a battlefield as it was. It changes because a major navy is, has been subtracted. And it changes because, because again, the goals, the goals of the powers are far different. And I left Japan out of that altogether. In 1941, when Japan joined the war, at least against the Europeans, obviously that opened up the Pacific. It changed everything for the British. They had to suddenly deal with an enemy and they had to supply a fleet on the other side of the world, which they really didn't have the ships to do anymore. So it's, it's the four periods that I, that I describe are very useful for me in, in, in looking at the naval war in, in, in different episodes where like conditions, like geography, like, like participants, like, like objectives all pertained at the same time. You know, comparing the naval war in, in, in 1941 with the naval war in 1944, just two, two different animals completely. And you can't look at the performance of the British Navy in 1944 and say, oh, well, you know, this, this, is, this, and this was affected by 41. Just, just different animals. And, and another thing I don't even talk about in, in the article well, at, at much length is, is the, effect of, um, the effect of technology in all this. Because the technology that was used in 19... 1940, for example, is completely different than the technology that was being used in 1944. Not just on aircraft carriers, not just not just radar, but but a whole a whole slew of, of uh, different different um, technologies. Uh, we don't talk about underwater underway replenishment, for example, very much. But the Japanese didn't even have that capability until they they basically invented it on the way to Pearl Harbor. Uh, the Germans had sort of a sort of a uh, way of meeting in the mid-ocean, but but you know things like being able to refuel your ships underway turned out to be such an important technology that nobody was even thinking about in 1940. And that's, that's you know, just an example of, of one of the things that that um that's important. In, in 1940, for example, the Italians had fuel oil. They could they could fight a war without looking at their um their bunkers, wondering how they're going to get home. Well, they, they were fighting a different type of war in 1940. They were fighting what they thought would be a very short temporary war. 
And they were not fighting the war to um, necessarily um, defeat the British by themselves, like the way they probably should have been doing. By 1942, when they know that they're in that type of war, when they know that what they have to do in order to win, they don't have the fuel to do it. You know, they're like I point out in the article, they're they're tying up the buoys to conduct firing exercises. What kind of what kind of training is that? You know, how can how can you fight a war? How can you fight a naval war if you can't even put your ships to sea? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And you also talk about uh, the intel advantage. Tell us about that a little bit. I think intelligence is one of the topics that is still in the harbor, as it were. I, I think that um, after 1974 and, and the exposure of the ultra-secret, everybody thought, oh, this is the missing piece to the history of World War II. Now we know what happened. And now we know why this you know, events fell out the way they fell. And, and this is the secret explanation. And the whole history of the war needs to be rewritten. And you see the famous the famous uh, conclusions that ultra and intelligence saved two years off the length of the war. And, and I think that point of view has kind of disappeared or is certainly not as powerful as it was 30 years ago. The intelligence battle was a war that was fought back and forth by both sides. Sometimes the Axis had the advantage, sometimes the Allies had the advantage. The Allied advantage became well established by 1943 and was pretty powerful by, by 1944. But nonetheless, intelligence is no good unless you can use it. And you don't always have it, and becoming too addicted to it can be a bad thing as well as, as a good thing. I mean, the famous example that people use as far as the power of intelligence is how were the Germans able to um, pull off the Battle of the Bulge, for example, completely surprising a U.S. Army, the surprise attack by 1944 when we're reading all their intelligence and all their mail. Well, obviously it's possible, and the surprise was that much greater because we didn't have any advance notice of it. So I think I think the intelligence war is something that we're still seeing work done, and I think that's one of the one of the areas where um, a lot of good work still remains to be done. I my last book, which is about the Mediterranean, called Six Victories, if you don't mind me plugging it a little bit, has a lot to do with intelligence. I, I sat down, I read every ultra decryption that was made over the course of four months. I mean, two thousand pages of decryptions, for example just to know what kind of good the British were getting from this intelligence. And, you know, in the end, only um, 15% of the convoys were attacked and had a ship damaged, even though 60% of the convoys had some sort of pre-notice pre of their sailing. You know, intelligence is great, but you need to be able to, A, use it, and B, use it effectively. And if you can't do those two things, well, then it doesn't matter. Well, you mentioned um, how uh, the war is still being told in, quote, new and interesting ways, even after 75 years. And the intelligence factor is one of those examples you've just given of how all the World War II books have not yet been written. What are some other areas or aspects of the war you think are like still fertile ground for uh, new historians or perhaps something that uh, you'll be working on in your prolific future of writing about this war? I'm working on technology right now. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book that will be published by Naval Institute probably in 2022 or so. Uh, we'll, we'll see when. About naval technologies and how naval technologies are used by different countries, by different navies, 
why do some technologies are used effectively, why some aren't. Um, you know, the whole the whole famous example of that is radar. Germans had the best radar going in 1939, but they didn't do much with it. And why why was that? And there are, there are specific reasons. Um, I think that's a very interesting topic. I think the whole history of the Pacific War, for example, needs a major, major, major revision. I think we've told the story from the U.S. side. We've we've looked at it pretty carefully. We've, we have our conclusions. But we really haven't said that much from the Japanese side. There's several very basic, several basic works that everyone relies upon for information on the Japanese side of the war. I've heard half dozen of them. And there's just a mountain of, of information out there. The Japanese kept diaries. There are very few of those have been translated. All the Japanese historians who are, are writing about the war, I mean, where's their work? Hasn't been translated. Uh, people tell me that in the future, machine translation will become so good that we're going to be open to a whole new, wide, wonderful world of Japanese documentation. And I, for one, am skeptical. But if that does happen, maybe I'll start writing about the Pacific again. But I think that's one big thing that's on the turnpike coming coming up. One of the, the really heartening things about the way the war was fought was was brought out in the article when I used the example of the USS Massachusetts and the fact that the Massachusetts was a ship that went from um, hitting the water to being serviceable in just 14 months, as opposed to two years for, for her German counterpart. The fact that she was crewed by... Uh, cross-section of American society, at least 1940 American society. The fact that um, so few of her officers had sea experience when she did go into combat. The fact that, that there was a system and, and a way for the United States to be able to, um, to respond militarily to the challenges that it faced so positively by calling upon its population to do so well in, in such a complicated job, for me, is, is, is a story that, that um, is very compelling, and I, I would, I would um, be interested in seeing you know, a little bit more about that. I, I think the human factors, as opposed to the, um, to the um, material and machine factors, are something that doesn't quite get the, the coverage in naval warfare that, that, it, that it perhaps should. You know, we talk about armor thickness, we talk about um, fire control, we talk about all these hyper-complicated technical aspects of naval history, but we don't talk about what it takes to take some kid from Alabama uh, who's never seen the ocean before um, and put him on board a battleship and give him a job and a function and have him do it well and have that ship be able to hit its targets at 28,000 yards the very first time it's in combat, hitting a moving target at 28,000 yards after its radar goes out. You know, for me, this is all really kind of compelling stuff. So the article is in the October issue of Naval History Magazine. It's titled The Greatest Naval War Ever Fought. The author is our good friend Vince O'Hara. Vince, thanks very much, as always, for being on the Proceedings Podcast with us, and we look forward to talking to you again very soon. Well, Ward, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and, and speak, Eric. I thank you very much for um, having me as well and for publishing my my um, my articles. I, I Enjoy talking with you guys. I think what you're doing here at the podcast is great. You know, I follow you on other stuff, and, and so I say keep up the good work. Thanks very much. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again next time.